This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on responsible and fair AI in the workplace and the marketplace. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Dr. Broderick Turner, who is an assistant professor of marketing at Virginia Tech Pamplin School of Business and a visiting fellow at Harvard Business School's Institute for Business and Global Society. He also runs the Technology, Race, and Prejudice Lab, or the Track Lab, where he and his fellow trappers are pushing the boundaries on understanding how race and racism underlie many consumer and managerial decisions. His main research area focuses on the intersection of marketing, technology, racism, and emotion. Next, we have Dr. Kareem Ganena, who is the founder of RAI Audit, an AI governance and research consultancy. With 16 years of experience in ethics and governance spanning both industry and academia, he recently served as the founding user experience researcher on Meta's Responsible AI team, leading AI fairness user research at the company. He has helped Meta's RAI team scale its products across the company and bolster the responsible adoption of AI. Dr. Ganena holds a PhD in management from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, specializing in business ethics and organizational behavior. And I just realized we've got a Virginia connection uh, across the two of you here. Who would, have, who would have thought that that would happen? But in any case, welcome, Broderick and Kareem. I am so honored to have you with me today for a conversation on responsible and fair AI in the workplace and in the marketplace. So we're hoping to cover you know, a lot of interesting ground here today. And as I as talked to Broderick and Kareem about this earlier, uh, I like to think of myself as a, as a novice on these topics. So today I'm gonna to represent the average uh, consumer um, and worker who doesn't have a lot of experience talking about um, AI, uh, other, other than what I read about and hear about um, on mainstream media and from my colleagues. So, so we're hoping today that um, this conversation will be helpful to others of you who are just like me, who are trying to figure out how relevant uh, a conversation about responsible and fair AI is to us as workers, but also as consumers. So let's get started talking about broadly about responsible and fair AI. And so Project, I'm gonna to go to you first. And what I'm hoping you can do is, is share a bit about how and why you became involved in this topic and summarize for us some of your current work related to this topic. Yeah, so I got involved in this topic area, uh, honestly, more than a decade ago when I was teaching high school math uh, at a public high school in Atlanta, Georgia, where I taught like 90% uh, black students. And uh, what I wanted to do while I was there was figure out ways to make those kids' lives better, fairer, more equitable. Uh, and simultaneously, I used to teach linear regression and students would ask me, Mr. Turner, I'm ever gonna use this. And now I have an answer. The answer is now that, uh, you know, so I've moved into this space where I'm thinking a lot about how race and racism underlie uh, market systems and technology being a system uh, that matters. 
And our research group, the Technology, Race, and Prejudice Lab, is doing active research now on what levers can be moved to lead to uh, more equality in systems, to lead to better outcomes in technology. Uh, this has extended some into some uh, company advisory work where uh, we're trying to get companies to consider that moving uh, communities earlier into the development process leads to better uh, products that come out. And then on the public knowledge side, uh, we're writing white papers on uh, how different uh, identity groups may be impacted by generative AI, for instance. So we just uh, finished a report on for Hispanic Heritage Month, uh, Hispanic Heritage, Heritage Month, thank you, on how uh, and uh, how folks with Hispanic origins and backgrounds should be thinking about generative AI. How do they fit into this interlocking system of data classification and code? Okay, great, thank you so much. Uh, so Kareem, same question to you. Can you share a bit about how and why you became involved in this topic around responsible and fair AI and summarize some of your current work on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited about this dialogue with yourself and Broderick and uh, love the Virginia connection. Virginia is well represented here today. Um, so I've, I've been involved in ethics and governance uh, for quite some time, you know, prior to pursuing my PhD. So I'm not surprised that I ended up in kind of AI governance. Uh, what I'm a little bit surprised about is actually post pursuing my PhD, going back to uh, industry. Initially, when I started off my PhD program, I had no intentions uh, to go back to industry. But in my last year of my PhD, which was my sixth year, I had received offers basically from academia and industry, and uh, I went for it back to industry. So um, firstly, as someone who belongs to a minority group, um, I was very passionate and still am about having a front seat to these conversations that are happening in tech and uh, helping shape the, uh, the technology using, you know, the latest and greatest research, but also interacting with product teams to be able to do that, and policy and legal and so forth. Um, the other reason that I chose to go back was, uh, you know, as I was thinking through my impact, to be honest, uh, joining a company like Meta's responsible AI team where the company has over three, 3 billion users, I think, you know, it's very difficult to kind of argue with the extent of impact that you can do uh, when you uh, you have 3 billion users and any kind of like product changes that you make can impact really a lot of people worldwide. And, and lastly, honestly, uh, one of the concerns that I've had about uh, academia was, you know, being stuck in a small college town somewhere uh, where there's not very much diversity and uh, that would not be appropriate for the upbringing of my kids. And so that was uh, a, a very uh, strong concern, uh, not having much of an autonomy about where I live or where I work. Um, so it drove me back to actually go to, um, to industry. Now, as far as my research, uh, much of what I do for clients is obviously confidential, but on the public side of things, I've been testing out uh, some popular AI image generators. Um, and I'm finding a few patterns. So uh, most of the images uh, that are being generated from uh, the, uh, at least the AI generators uh, that I have tested tend to be of people from the white race. Uh, people of co color are uh, greatly overlooked. 
these models tend to associate uh, a professional headshot or a professional dress code or a professional hairstyle with those of uh, white people. Uh, women are underrepresented uh, and uh, when presented as professionals, they're often limited to gendered occupations such as teachers, nurses, graphic designers, and much less likely to produce to appear as CEOs, for example, or medical doctors or lawyers. Um, images also tend to skew on the younger side of things and senior managers, for example, are associated with having gray hair, which is a sign of ageism. Um, and finally, you know, these models tend to portray certain populations in demeaning ways. For example, uh, if, if you ask Dali Bing to portray Turks, uh, it will uh, provide you with a picture of a stern turkey, uh, a stern turkey dressed in a turban, right? Um, whereas if you were to ask it to produce, for example, an image of an American or a French person or something like that, will do a much better job, right? Um, they might also refuse to produce images of certain populations for no good reason, such as if you ask it to produce um, an image of a Muslim or a Jew uh, while presenting followers of other religions. So definitely this technology is extremely powerful. Uh, I am not a doomsayer per se as a, uh, relating to the technology, but I believe uh, that, you know, we have to do our prudent and due diligence in order for us to be able to direct the trajectory of this technology in ways um, such that we're maximizing the benefits while minimizing the harms. My, my favorite example of uh, that gender of AI uh, art is when people do prompts for Jesus in the temple flipping the table, that they literally get Jesus doing like gymnastics, doing a backflip over a table. Uh, so no, yeah, <laughs> text, yeah. text has no meaning. It's just, it's just funny. Absolutely. So we're going to definitely dive into there's a lot of, to unpack there and certainly the implications of this. I mean, I think of where I sit, I can automatically connect those dots. But I think as we begin to talk about some of the challenges, it'll be important for people to understand what could possibly go wrong when you you're not represented and how these models are being uh trained. I, I think to me, that's an obvious answer, but I don't think that's obvious to everybody is what happens when you lack representation in, in the data amongst the data or you're misrepresented, right? Who you are and the, 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 the groups that you're part of are misrepresented in, in how the model's being trained. So we're going to talk about that in a minute, but let me just, and probably this is part of the answer to your question here, Kareem, um, let's, let's start with business and employers first, right? And, and I can imagine, I have some sense of this from my own work, that businesses and employers um, are likely and can be struggling to understand their conversation, not just in a role about AI use, but fair and responsible AI use. And so obviously without you know saying anything confidential, can you talk generally about how you through your work are helping businesses and employers under make sense of their roles and responsibilities on this topic? Yeah, I think it's important to be clear that um, companies are accountable for how their AI systems operate. And that responsibility can be offloaded, right? It can be considered an externality of some sort. They have obligations to their customers, and it's just a matter of time uh, before legislation comes into effect in this space. You know, obviously, we have right now the uh, EU AI Act, which we're waiting. It's just a matter of time before enforcement happens. and. There's a lot of talk uh, about legislation uh, in Congress and so forth here in the United States. 
Um, and honestly, if companies want to build successful products in this AI era, era they must invest in responsible AI infrastructure, right? Um, doing so requires a commitment from the board of directors, from senior leadership, but also ultimately what it does is, is it pays off uh, in terms of earning customer trust and confidence, right? It, it just doesn't cut it for you to actually have an AI strategy uh, without thinking through the, the trust layer or the responsible layer, um, you know, issues of like fairness of privacy and um, robustness and, and so forth, right? Because if, if you're a product manager, for example, you're trying to produce the best products, no one really wants to deal with a company whose products are reaching, you know, their privacy, uh, you know, their, their privacy obligations and stuff like that. Like if you're using personal data uh, of your users to train your models, or if your products don't work for certain segments of the population or exposes your users to specific types of harms, you know, cutting corners like that really does a disservice uh, to your stakeholders, of course, uh, but it also exposes you to legal and reputational uh, risk. Um, and it's just a bad way of doing business. It's just a matter of time before, you know, uh, better companies are able to gain more market share because they're taking this more um, seriously and investing in setting up the infrastructure. Yeah, you know, a lot of what I hear you saying is, you know, sometimes it's easy to think that ethics and responsibility and questions of responsibility isn't the job of a corporation. But you take a strong test stance and certainly through your own dissertation work and your own scholarship is that these are things that are not nice to have. Um, they're must haves. And, and, you know, while it's it shouldn't always come down to this we do have a system called the legal system, which is set in place to help adjudicate these issues when it does feel like it's a gray area, even though a gray area, excuse me, even might be black and white with respect to businesses and their responsibility to ensure that they're not inducing harm uh, through their activities. Broderick, I mean, certainly I know that you do work with companies as well. I, I would also like you to put on your researcher and educator hat and, and help us to understand like the nature of this conversation from a scientific perspective and also in the work that you're doing, you know, as a professor, as part of your fellowship. I'm actually thinking a lot about ChatGPT these days, certainly because as an educator, this is sort of the one, this is probably the most I know about this conversation around should students be able to use ChatGPT to complete their assignments? And it seems to me like it's such a polarizing sets of issues. Um, so I am just curious, as you think about the, the places where you sit, Broderick, um, how you're thinking about the issue around businesses and employers and education's yeah. role in this conversation. So I, I think a couple of thoughts, right? So first, uh, to piggyback on Kareem, when I talk to both students and businesses, I think of myself as an educator no matter where I am, right? And I have the same thing I tell them, uh, which is, if you get this wrong, right, you don't include uh, a wide swath of human beings in the creation of your technology products, when you fail, because it's not an if, but when you fail, you lose money because you spent all this money on development without considering uh, the human beings at the end. And when the product gets released, the product fails again because people don't use it, right? So as a really simple example, uh, those 
automatic uh, faucets where you put your hand under it did not include uh, like darker melanated people in the data set and the training set for when they were testing out this automatic hand washer. And so while it sold, uh, sold fine in North America, when it went further out into uh, places closer to the equator where people are browner, regardless of uh, ethnic origin, they didn't sell any because the product did not work. They would install it and people would put their hand under the thing. And I know if you're a black or a brown person, you have done this at the airport bathroom and been upset, right? But if your country is majority melanated, then no one bought them. And so had they included those folks earlier in the development process, like all that money they spent on development uh, would have been worth it because they could have sold uh, more products. And so when I'm talking to my students and business leaders who in some ways are my students, uh, I go, look, this is why we do it. Like, I'm, I'm gonna speak to the same incentives that you have. You wanna make more money, you wanna keep your job, uh, you wanna do right by your shareholders, then you need to move uh, the process or move the people earlier into the development of this process. Now, in terms of this question around chat GPT and uh, the way that uh, people are using this inside and outside the classroom, uh, we developed in the Trap Lab this, these three questions called the 3D model of equitable tech adoption, right? And I'm gonna share those questions with you and this will think, help you understand, help people understand what do I do with any tech that comes into my business or into my classroom? Those three questions. Question one, what does this product actually do? Not what do you want it to do, not what it might do in the future, not what it could do if we had uh, a billion more hours of compute, like what does it actually do today? Second question is who does this product disempower? All right, every technology will increase power for some and decrease power for others. So ask yourself, who does this disempower? And then the third question is, what is the daily use of this product? Not the edge case. Don't tell me that, you know, we're going to, uh, I'll give you a, a pertinent example for Her uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. There is uh, some question that maybe we should include in facial recognition, whether or not, uh, this person is Hispanic or this person is uh, Latino. And uh, the sales pitch for this is that this will help us when we do the census to identify who is Hispanic or Latino so we have a better count, right? Now I can get into like the research in on this and why this is problematic or some of the philosophy of like how this goes awry, but let's talk about that case. They're saying, we're gonna use this for the census. The census happens every 10 years. Right? There is no government service that's going to buy this expensive technology and then only use it once every 10 years. So then what's the most likely daily use case right, of a technology that uh, like says this person is Hispanic or not? Right? Are they going to install it at borders? Probably. Uh, would they install it where you hand over your uh, passport? Probably. Right? And is that problematic? Definitely. Right. And so this is how I'm thinking about these things. Uh, and in the, the case of ChatGPT, your students should ask themselves, what does this actually do? Right. Is this writing papers or is it just creating plausible sounding sentences? Right. And if it's just creating plausible sounding sentences, 
ooh, that could get real bad real fast uh, if that plausibility has no relationship to accuracy, right? So, you know, feel free to use it and feel free to fail. That's on you. Uh, so that's, that's what come down to it. So you're doing a great job, both of you already, of raising some of these key challenges, but I'd like to explore these more. And certainly, you know, we don't have time for top tens, so we'll do, and I'm sure that there are 10 on each of your lists, but let's think about this in terms of the top two or three issues from where you sit. So, Broderick, let's go back to you. You can include those that you've already talked about or, you know, invite others into the conversation. What would you say from where you sit are the top two to three issues with respect to responsible and fair AI in the workplace and the marketplace? Uh, two things. Uh, the number one issue is that the human beings that end up using the AI are being users of machine learning or being users of this generative AI aren't necessarily the people that are included in the data, all right? Aren't necessarily the people that are included in the classification of the data and definitely aren't the people that are setting the rules and doing the coding of the data. And so the most pressing uh, issue is to get those people into those spaces, right? To get representative data, to get representative uh, classification of that data, to get representativeness in the actual coders that decide the rules for what we see. And then that way, the stuff that actually comes out will be closer to fair and equitable because those people would be in the room. So that's one. The second thing is that all of my research uh, is uh, around this space is really to demystify this black box. There is nothing magic right, going on inside of these statistical models. They are statistical models. And if you learned in high school y equals mx plus b, then you like, have the building block that you need to understand how these systems work. Uh, we can talk about this if you ever come hang out in the trap lab, but trust me, if you know y equals mx plus b, right, then you too can start to understand that it's not magic going on inside of these systems, but just a bunch of opinions uh, around this commodified human labor and the data, the classification and the code. Well, it's interesting, you know, we've sort of hinted around sort of like language here. Um, in this case, I think I find myself personally feeling like it does sound like it's magic because the the language of AI and technology that we're using to talk about these things sounds very foreign to me. And so I think that is what gives it its mystique is if I can talk about it in a way that doesn't coincide with lay terminology that regular people use, then it sounds like it's inaccessible to me, right? It's like, it's a is that a power move? I don't know. But language is powerful and language can be used as a way to exclude. And in this case, you know, I think what you're helping us to understand, Broderick, is you many of you, because you learned Y equals MX plus B, you know that's a language that you spoke at some point. And to the extent that we give people a grounding for understanding this new technology through something that they already understand, language that they already possess, then the I think the mystique around it disappeared, the power differential between the creators of the technology and the consumers and the employees who are trying to figure out what does this mean for them, that starts to be reduced as well. Is that sort of along some of the same lines, Roderick, of, of what you're suggesting? That's exactly it, right? So like if you hear the term 
Um, ChatGPT says they have a billion parameter model, right? You'll go, oh, those are big words, billion parameter. What does that mean? Let's explain it, right? Let's break it down real quick. So let's go back to this y equals mx plus b. B is call it our y-intercept, some error term. We're not going to worry about that. We're just going to focus on the y equals mx. Y is an output. Every computer, every machine, right? They're all uh, based on the Turing machine. Nothing really changes. They can only do what they've been told to do. Y is going to be the output that comes out, right? That could be plausible sounding sentences. That could be art of Jesus flipping over a table, whatever, right? And then M and X is what matters. X is inputs. So if I'm deciding, I'm, I'm building a system that's going to decide whether or not uh, someone gets parole, for instance, those X's might be zip code, right? Problematic. Those X's might be past criminal history. Those X's might be height, right? Those X could be anything. Then the M is what matters, right? The M is essentially the slope of that line. We learned this in uh, uh, 10th grade, but that slope is an opinion. It is some developer's opinion, or if it's unsupervised, it's still some developer's opinion on how much that X matters. How much does it matter that I live in this zip code? How much does it matter that you know I'm six foot six, right? How much does it matter that my name is Broderick? And then like that opinion gets added in. So each one of those MXs, we can call that uh, a parameter. So if it's a billion things, it has a billion opinions, but they all get filtered out and come out to this output Y. That's it. We have now learned machine learning. Congratulations, everybody, right? Like pat yourselves on the back. If you learned Y equals MX plus B, you too uh, can start to understand what's going on in these systems. You can do like Kareem or myself and run audits where you basically test these systems uh, with a bunch of stimuli to see what comes out to explain, uh, this thing is maybe leading to inequality because of uh, this weirdness, right? And so let's just demystify the whole thing. It's not, I mean, it's complex. Let me not poo-poo my computer science folks out there, but uh, we can share a language that inside of, you know, this increasing complexity comes down to a pretty simple building block. And you know the building block already if you made it through high school and our Wharton grads and our MBAs and uh, undergrads, I know uh, that you learned Y equals MX plus B. I have to tell you, it's been a long time since I learned Y equals MX plus B. I'm not sure my high school teacher was as great as you were explaining that, but I feel like I have in the last three minutes a much better understanding of what it is that people are trying to suggest is sophisticated, um, which often I think sometimes feels inaccessible, but I think you made me believe, and I'm sure others believe that they too can understand sort of like what the big deal here is and assess for themselves. Is it a big deal or is it just more uh, of what we already know? Kareem, let me turn to you and let's get your top two to three issues. I don't know how much they overlap. I know earlier you spoke about you know, issues around representation in the data. Not sure if that's one of your top two or three issues, if you have others. Can you share with us um, from your vantage point, what are some of the key challenges? Yeah, so firstly, I agree with uh, Broderick in that, you know, transparency is a, is a major issue, right? This black box problem and trying to basically understand uh, what companies are doing. Are companies being transparent about how they're training these models? What data sets they're using? Are they explaining to their users? What is happening behind the scenes? Obviously, there's an optimal level of transparency as well, like transparency after specific, um, you know, uh, 
particular level might get too in-depth to the extent that the uh, average user might zone out, right? It's irrelevant information, right? You don't want to inundate your user with, with uh, too much technical details that they really zone out. Um, so for me, the, the first pressing challenge is addressing uh, unfairness in AI systems, right? So if you're chaining data, like Roderick has mentioned, is missing certain populations, or if your data is mis mislabeled, obviously that can give rise to bias and can have adverse effects on um, you know, certain segments of the population. Uh, this pr particularly becomes uh, you know, problematic in issues of like healthcare, employment, uh, you know, uh, criminal justice, where these decisions are consequential for people, right? Um, so if obviously if these uh, these issues of bias are not left unaddressed, uh, they can perpetuate uh, unfairness in society at a very high rate, right? We're not just talking about your prototypical kind of bias. We're talking at like an exponential rate with these automated decision systems, which is why they um, they can be very dangerous, right? So the second problem I see is uh, what is called the hallucination problem, which is pretty much like making up stuff, right? Like Roderick had mentioned, these LLMs learn to predict the next word, right? Or phrase in a sentence. So um, they can misrepresent facts. Uh, they can also tell you a very good story uh, that has a very good narrative uh, that is extremely plausible, uh, but is misleading, right? And I think this is a particularly big problem uh, given that we as human beings, we have like an automation bias where uh, we have a propensity to kind of favor suggestions from an automated decision system uh, and to ignore um, contradictory information that, uh, that, you know, we might know, right? We just kind of defer to uh, this automated decision system, right? Um, the third one I would say is kind of like data privacy and security concerns. And... This involves things like unauthorized access uh, of data, scraping of data that, for example, the, uh, the, the company or the LLM uh, might not have uh, access to, uh, you know, or consent to use. Uh, things like data leakage, for example, where a large language model might, um, you know, present some information that a user had used. Um, and we have cases like that coming up in in the media where Samsung, for example, has banned uh, the use of ChatGPT by its uh, employees because of the fact that uh, the, the LLM was, uh, you know, revealing some of these trade secrets. Uh, so things like malicious use and manipulation attempts by nefarious actors, these are all very serious concerns as well. Yeah, so I, as, as I listen to you all talk about these concerns, it sort of raises the concerns that I've just had, again, just as an, an employee, right? And certainly as, as a consumer. And, and certainly what came across my uh, social media feed recently was uh, in the last couple of weeks, there was a uh, lawsuit, a class action lawsuit uh, filed in the Northern District of California. Um, the plaintiffs are OpenAI and, and ChatGPT and the Microsoft Cor Corporation. Um, and one of the big areas in, included in this 
um, lawsuit is invasion of privacy. And it's it's pretty compelling. Again, I'm not a lawyer no, and we none of us knows how this is going to pan out. But just looking at it to understand the, the lengths at which people um, don't understand how their data is being accessed and utilized without their permission um, is it, it can be concerning. And so I would encourage people to it's an, it was a nice tutorial, I would say, if you will, for me in privacy concerns around this topic. But I'm going to certainly um, put, put back to the two of you if, if you come in, if you've had a chance to like look at anything in relation to this class action lawsuit. I'm wondering if you're surprised by this lawsuit or if you just thought that this was going to somebody. It was just a matter of time before it happened. Any thoughts on that, Broderick? And then I'll come back to you, Kareem. Uh, yeah, so clearly it was only a matter of time. And we think about, again, what do these systems actually do, right? So these large language models train uh, on previous data. And training just means that they take in a bunch of data so they then connect it uh, together. But whose data did they take? Where did that data come from? Now, there is some indication that you know, when you're training on a huge corpus of uh, data that you're gonna tend towards the cheapest and freest sources, right? This is why we get some, a lot of weirdness that comes out of these systems in terms of bias, because they're trained on the free parts of the internet uh, a lot of the time. And what is overrepresented in the free parts of the internet, Stephanie? Uh, the free parts of people who I'm trying to think about social media as an example, as a source of data. And then I'm thinking about who the users might be. Um, I'm thinking about, um, not sure if this is where you're going, but I think about all the young people who use social media and put all of their information <laughs> in so, sources. Yeah. So we, so we have that, right? We have an overrepresentation of younger folks, right? So we're going to have weird age related things that don't really exist in the data. The other thing that gets overrepresented on the internet, on the free parts at least, is propaganda, right? So some websites where they'll say really negative things about presidents, for instance, are free, whereas if I go to, I don't know, the New York Times, I can read four articles before I get to a firewall and they're like, no, sir, you're done, right? Uh, and so there's going to be some weirdness that's in the data from that. The other thing that's free on the internet or overrepresented for free on the internet is pornography. Right. So if I'm taking in porn and propaganda into these systems, right, then I'm going to get all types of weirdness out. And the only way to improve these things is to get access to, uh, you know, data that has closer to accuracy, that has time spent into it. If you want to read one of our research articles, Stephanie, how much does it cost if you're like not affiliated with schools? Like thousands of dollars, right? And so if you're one of these companies and you want to improve your data, how do you do it? Do you spend thousands of dollars per article from Stephanie Curry or do you steal it? Right. Is that like a, a rhetorical question? <laughs> I, you can't say, but I, I'll answer the question. The, the answer is you, you're, probably, you're probably not going to spend thousands of dollars per article per professor if instead you can steal it. All right. And this goes for any of we'll call it better data, because uh, I need a bunch of it to get to some version of, it's not accurate, but a better uh, distribution of data. And so, yeah, of course they're getting sued because 
to make the system better, they had to take this stuff in. And we do have intellectual property laws. Somebody's going to have to pay or they're going to have to change the law. Kareem, do you want to chime in on this conversation before we move to that? How do we fix it? Yeah, absolutely. I I think, um, you know, lawsuits are just going to mushroom from here onwards. Uh, It's just a matter of time, honestly. You know, every day we're hearing about another lawsuit, uh, you know, whether it's relating to privacy or discrimination or um, other aspects. Uh, So to me, I'm I'm not too surprised. I think uh, these companies are... You know, obviously, I, I can't speak on on their behalf, but you know, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're training our LLMs on reliable data sources. Uh, we need to kind of fine tune these LLMs. We need to have like some kind of a fact checking mechanism to ensure, uh, you know, if they're producing uh, garbage, that you know they're they're being kind of they're receiving feedback and and they're improving. We have to have human reviewers in the loop uh, that can play a role in, in correcting like kind of the, the trajectory of, of these LLMs, um, you know, perhaps even including like confidence scores to allow users to kind of understand, engage the reliability of the information that they're getting, right? And, uh, and even to uh, provide users with a mechanism to provide feedback for the LLM as to whether, you know, the response that I got was terrible or not, so that uh, they're taking in another signal from their users. So I think in conjunction, all of these different measures, uh, hopefully over the course of time, and as long as there's, you know, strong buy-in from leadership to kind of improve these models, I think um, companies can do a better job at, protecting the privacy of people, but also ensuring that, you know, whatever gets propagated uh, in terms of outputs is more reliable. Okay. Uh, any other suggestions or solutions um, around that or the other challenges that you and Broderick brought up today? Um, interest, like we think about like one or two key things that can be done uh, for various audiences. And I think I'm thinking of lots of audiences. I'm thinking of um, you know, employers and institutions. I'm thinking of consumers and employees as well. Uh, yeah, there's. I let Kareem go first on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's the grass is so green. Um, there is so much that can be done in this space. Uh, so, firstly, there needs to be uh, legislation. There needs to be comprehensive AI legislation and enforcement to protect public interests. Uh, it's not sufficient for companies to have voluntary commitments. That's good, but it, uh, it, it's not sufficient. Second thing is, you know, there needs to be, um, when we're thinking about data protection laws, uh, they need to be strengthened to include, you know, AI systems and to ensure that um, the privacy rights of users and so forth. Uh, you know, we spoke about transparency and that companies uh, need to disclose how AI systems have been built, what data sources they've been using, and to kind of um, to get, take a crack at the black box problem. Uh, stakeholder engagement is really important, you know, as we're thinking through diverse audiences and data uh, sources, uh, you need to engage with different stakeholders. I always say when you're working in this space, you really need to get it like be cross-functional because there's a lot of barbed wire in this space, you know, whether it is 
you know, privacy, legal, regulatory, you're working with ethicists, product managers, you're working with uh, data scientists, researchers, uh, you know, and it is extremely cross-functional space and it has to be that way because it is a socio-technical problem that uh, takes all the great minds to be able to attack it from different ways. You need to have diverse teams, for example, so that you have representation. People can identify and rectify bias effectively, right? Training data needs to be more inclusive. Make sure, you know, like Broderick was saying, who's missing out from this data? Like, who are we not seeing? But, you know, I always say that um, this technology is not neutral. Uh, this technology is already has a point of view. And the, its point of view is what it has been trained on, right? So if it has been missing people of color, for example, then that's its point of view, right? It's not like it's coming as a blank slate. No, it is already has a point of view. And so uh, that's a little bit of myth busting. So, I, I mean, we need to kind of like take inclusive data, inclusive uh, inclusivity into consideration uh, throughout the product development life cycle, right? We need to have like audits that are done on uh, these these models and, and ensure that you know we have uh, results and uh, that can kind of feed into how we can improve uh, human oversight. For example, I had mentioned this earlier that there needs to be a human in the loop to be able to kind of uh, you know spot and uh, improve the trajectory of uh, outcomes. I mean, there's so much that can be done. I can go on and on and on, but um, Broderick. Great start. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Broderick. Your turn. What would you say um, are some key specific things that can be done? So I'm going to break this down into uh, different market segments because that's how my brain is wired. So we're going to talk about what can companies do, what can consumers do, what can researchers do, and then what can your students do. All right. So first, for companies. Consider that 3D model that I laid out earlier before you roll out a product. What does this product do? Who does it disempower? Uh, and what uh, is its daily use, right? If you need help answering these questions, then call RAI audits. Uh, you know, Kareem will pick up the phone uh, or you can holler at the folks over here in the trap lab, right? And we can help you think through some of these things uh, as we're trying to make this technology better and more equitable, all right? Two, Consumers, what can you do? Do not accept that it's magic. There is nothing magical about these systems. These systems are just people and their opinions of people. If you learned Y equals MX plus B, then you have learned the building blocks of every machine learning system, right? So if there is some weird outcome that comes out when you're on Facebook or Twitter or you notice some weirdness on your uh, when you're, you put out an application for a loan, trust your gut, all right? It is weird and say something because again, the only way to improve these things as well is uh, uh, for them to update their model and it's you. You are right that something's wrong, all right? It is not magic, it's not your fault, it's them. Uh, don't accept magic. For researchers, if you are interested in working on these topics and in this space, go to jointhetrap.com and come hang out with us. Uh, we meet uh, online once a week over Zoom, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Uh, and then finally, for students, this is going to be a weird one uh, because 
in some ways, this rise of uh, generative AI in writing and art uh, makes people believe that we are like this close to uh, having AI that can write beautiful books or make beautiful art. Uh, and I'm gonna challenge that, right? We, they also told us we were this close to having fully self-driving cars uh, within a year, 10 years ago, and they say this every year, and it's not happening anytime soon. All right, I'm gonna say the same thing is the case for art and writing and uh, creativity. I think that they will be a premium uh, on people that can actually express themselves clearly and accurately and honestly. And so if you are currently a student uh, anywhere, if you're in a B school, if you're in a college, if you're in high school and you're listening to this, I don't know why you're listening to a Wharton podcast in high school, but maybe you know, you're one of those kids. Uh, get really into building your uh, toolbox of creativity, right? Get really into uh, creative writing, right? Get really into making more art because there will be a value on the actual human element that comes out of this if uh, what everyone else is doing is just plugging in some chat bot that gives you uh, plausible sentences that aren't that good. If you can write better sentences, you'll win. Thank you. And, and I'm just going to tell you, Project, we actually do have knowledge that we're in high school. So your high school learners are going to learn a lot from what you all share today as much as your you know, fully experienced senior leaders will um, as well. Uh, so, so Broderick and Kareem, this has been fantastic. I feel so much more knowledgeable as somebody who believes that I know a lot about a lot of things, I, I know that I don't know a lot about this topic. And so the past amount of time, 45 minutes that we've been chatting have, have been amazing. And just, I think, helping me to feel more empowered um, as a researcher, a consumer, and a worker around sort of what exactly is happening and, and how I need to pay attention um, to, to what is being shared. Um, so I wanna thank you uh, so much for sharing your insights and your expertise with us. Uh, and to all the uh, Leading Diversity at Work podcast listeners. We truly appreciate you for being here. Uh, so that's all for now. Thanks to our audience for joining us and listening to this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.